Hello and welcome to EMS Research with Professor Bram, where we talk about the issues related to those who work in emergency medical services. Today, we'll be talking about jumping calls in rural EMS. Welcome to EMS Research Vlog and Podcast here from the studio in Houston, Texas. I'm your host, Bram Duffy. I'm a full-time paramedic working in EMS, just like many of you. I also have an appointment as an assistant professor of communication at Kennesaw State University and also a research fellow with Fielding Graduate University. And so I actually have a research study open now for first responders. So if you don't mind being interviewed by me, go ahead to my website at professorbram.com. It's professorbram.com. And you can check out more about the show and also click the research tab to apply. Before we get started, I want to tell you that I've written two books on communication. And the most recent book has been just released called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can find a link below, or I'll be talking more about it near the end of the show so you can see what's up. Today, I'm excited to tell you that I'm here to interview Vladimir Hoek, and he's a first responder and educator. And first, I just want to just tell you some stuff about him before um, he pops on with us. Vladimir Hoek is an accomplished professional with lots of cool background stuff that's really helped us find him quickly. And so he has recently put out an article that we're going to talk about today. And he works in Vermont and Montana since 2009 and has experience working with ambulance services, doing stuff like search and rescue missions and aiding uh, ski patrols and um, also operating within a dispatch center. In addition to the EMS roles, he also has a history of teaching English and health care subjects to public school students and then also coaching long distance running. So it's pretty cool. He has a bachelor's degree in secondary English and a master's degree in education leadership and has qualifications like a senior Alpine certification from the National Ski Patrol and advanced EMT certification with the National Registry. So all this stuff made him a well-rounded person to be able to get to uh, interview for this. And I'm excited to um, have you on the show today. I'll tell you, uh, finding an article like um, that you wrote really touched me pretty quickly because I have a history in rural EMS. Vladimir, you wrote an article in a journal of emergency medical services called Not Truly Off-Duty, True First Responders in Rural Areas. And I just uh, want to welcome you to the show and ask you about um, what made you put this article together. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Um, well, a few pieces kind of brought this article together. Um, I mean, what, my undergraduate degree is in English teaching, so I, I just enjoy writing. Um, I've worked as a journalist and a newspaper editor, um, which was a super cool job. Um, and I've I've written a book that isn't published yet. And I'd heard that if you publish other things, it can make it easier to publish a book. So I thought, okay, well, what what can I offer? Where can I publish? Um, I saw that you could just submit things to GEMS unsolicited. And uh, the first thing I submitted was a total flop. Um, and, and then this one um, was accepted for peer review, which was a, a really interesting experience. Um, and 
so now uh, I just moved back to Vermont from Montana in January and uh, the service, the ambulance service that serves the town I live in didn't have a first responder program. They, they'd kind of shut it down. Um, and then they were trying to resurrect it and think about, you know, what kind of uh, guidelines they might want. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll just write something and maybe I'll give it to the chief and, and he can just do whatever he wants with it. Um, but then I kind of had it that I, I thought polished enough to share with a larger audience, sent it off to GEMS and went through their process. And uh, there it is. Well, thank you for doing that. I think that you spoke for a lot of people. And so what your article was about, it was it was about what it's like being in a rural part of the country where you don't have as many ambulance services around. Now, you may have somebody who has medical training that could get to the person in an emergency, but getting the actual ambulance there may not be as fast. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is that I have like this back and forth that goes on in my mind because... You know, when I worked in the rural part of the, of the country, resources were so tight that if someone were to come on scene or we would be able to get help from, you know, a, a crew member that's off duty or a nurse that we know that it would be it would be golden and we'd be you know excited to, you know, to see them. And when I work in the city, it's kind of the opposite, you know, and so it's sort of like different ways of, of looking at, at EMS, because in the city, we would call someone a woo woo. Have you ever heard that term before? <laughs> so it basically means like someone who is overly enthralled with their job in EMS to the point where, you know, they would carry their EMS bag with them everywhere they go. Definitely it's in their car. They have their radio on their side. They definitely keep the T-shirt on and, you know, like it's just nuts. So and the other thing that I, I guess that used to label that funny word was with people who would carry the Batman belts with too many things on the side. And so, you know. In the city, I'm like, ha ha, that's kind of funny. But when I work in the rural area, I'm like, gosh, I need all that inspector gadget gear because I'm alone. I may not have any, you know, any kind of help. So I just think that the economy is is kind of interesting. And, and before we get going too much further, I have to also mention that when we talk about jumping calls, when we talk about, you know, getting to the, the patient in an emergency and doing whatever it takes to get there fastest, the first thing I thought when I read this article was about Mother Jugs and Speed. Have you seen the movie? I haven't seen you have it. Okay. So for those who haven't, please do, because, you know, it's, uh, it's a 1970s comedy that has some top actors in it and they really um, have two competing ambulance services in the area. And so if they find out one's going on a call, then they'll try to jump it, you know, cause they can get there first and get the patient first. And so I also worked in a rural part of the country where that was the case, you know, we had competing ambulance services. And uh, so even though you weren't supposed to, like sometimes people would, you know, technically you know get to the call sooner but you know um so there's sort of like this city versus country kind of uh you know thing that goes on my head when we talk about this topic but how has this been received by the people in your area and i'm assuming that most of the folks that have been able to give you feedback on the article have been from the rural area but tell me more about what folks have given you for feedback on your article right before we went live with our revived first responder program or, or jumper program here um, at the one service. Um, and, and I work for two services. Um, they're equidistant from my house. Um, basically, I turn left out of the driveway and work for one service, turn right, work for the other. Um, and so now I could jump calls for either service. And that was kind of my goal is like, hey, if my neighbor needs help, 
Right. I'd like to know about it and go help them. So I've, I shared it with both services. I shared it with another ambulance service. Um, and I mean, I'm sure a lot of people didn't read it, um, but people who did read it gave me positive feedback. And I thought, well, oh, that's kind of cool um, because it, the, the, the effect of the peer review process is that your writing has to become more professional, which I call boring. Uh, so it's not as interesting as I would usually write. Um, and it's like, oh, it was a good article. I'm like, well, okay. I thought it was boring knowing what the draft one was. But then I think the funniest piece is I didn't tell my family I published anything. And my brother's a flight nurse and, and he calls me up. He's like, hey, my coworkers just told me that you published an article. And I was like, oh yeah, well, that's a thing. <laughs> so um, yeah, I guess, you know, at least locally in Northern Vermont, people have read it. I, I don't know anything beyond that. Well, it's, I think it's awesome. And so what I want to um, ask about is what's the, what's the environment like there locally? So if if I have an emergency, maybe it would be kind of scary to have, to have strangers starting to knock on the door to my house. There's a trust thing that I would think that isn't there as much because you don't have the actual ambulance showing up with people in uniform. You just have people running, you know, to, to your side. So how does that feel? How does that work out in practical terms? Well, I mean, for starters, um, well, and, and just, yeah, for context, I mean, if you think about um, fire departments, uh, the vast majority of the area of the United States is served by volunteer fire departments. Uh, I'm not sure about the majority of the population. I know it's like an 80-20 split between urban-rural with 80% urban-ish, 20% rural-ish population. In rural areas, yeah, like all the fire departments basically are volunteer, right? And so that's actually a normal thing for, I think, for most people to understand that there are people with red lights on their personal vehicles that go and just do things, you know, literally drop what they're doing and go and help. And in a small town, if you don't know someone who's on the volunteer fire department, you know someone who knows them, right? It's like at most two degrees of separation. Yeah, because I guess I've lived in the city too long because I grew up <laughs> I grew up in the rural part of the country. So I, I need this rem I need this reminder. I need to remember that everybody knows everybody. So that makes this stuff even more um, personal because this could be, you know, it's definitely someone that you know that you could be there to um, to help. And I'm imagining in the city, you know, or the suburbs, this same kind of situation may not be as welcome to me. I would just uh, see all these folks, um, you know, running to help. We have ways that we can help each other out, especially in the rural parts of the country. There's just no ambulances in some places. So this is something that's going to help for a little bit, I guess. But in your area, for example, do you think there's going to be a, a, a longer term fix in the horizon to be able to have more ambulances so that less call jumping is necessary? Just just the nature of this. I, I don't think it's going to go away. So because um, so the two ambulances I work for, they're each a 10 minute normal flow of traffic drive from my house. Like, OK, let's say we, you know, each place staffs and they staff one ambulance at a time. They have an extra ambulance that, you know, maybe we could pull a crew together for a backup crew, you know, backup call or something. And I mean, regardless, you know, if, if my neighbor needs help, I will be there 10 minutes faster than an ambulance, even if 
the station was staffed with two ambulances, two full crews, right? Several areas are so sparsely populated that it's just not going to be practical to have ambulances that, you know, could hit like an eight minute response time target to every place. And so I think, yeah, there's going to be a lot of, I think that's just, I think it's a feature of, of rural EMS is that people um, sometimes will, you know, meet the ambulance on scene to form a full crew um, or they'll just go and join the, the ambulance crew. I mean, we have <laughs> at one service, we have our director's a paramedic and, and, and she just loves EMS. Um, and she, you know, if she's around, she's listening, maybe there's a, a BLS crew on duty that day and she's listening. Hey, if there's a, there's a call, she'll drive 10 miles and go meet the ambulance and do paramedic stuff. It's good to have people that are that are serious about helping the community because, gosh, um, we really need it. And I'm just thinking about all these different dynamics that are in play, especially in the in the rural area. And so what if like helicopter stuff, for example, does that play much in like if a jumper could get to the patient would that person be affiliated with the department so that they could authorize the dispatch of a helicopter? I've taken mutual aid calls where it's taken me over half an hour to get to the scene. Um, and that's, that's in Vermont, in Montana, we had primary service area that was an hour drive away uh, and then an hour and a half or two hours back to the hospital. So in Montana, we call helicopters a lot. Um, and yeah, anyone who, got there and said, yeah, it seems like we need a helicopter. Yeah. We just, they launch. Yeah. I'm just thinking of what, you know, whatever options you have sometimes. And so the other things that you brought up is in the article, talk about what it's like if you have a uh, paid versus volunteer service and how this would work, because I guess, you know, if you are needing overtime for Christmas, you could just assign yourself to all the calls, you know, if it is unrestricted. That was one of the things that you had mentioned was that this has to be monitored, you know, because of the safe driving part, but also like HR th things. So what's the best way that you see this, uh, this kind of system playing out? So yeah, one, one service is primarily, well, I guess they're both hybrid departments, volunteer and paid. Uh, and so if you're a volunteer, I'm going to say volunteer employee, I mean, like you get covered by workers' compensation and everything if you get, if you get wrecked on the job. Um, but so if you're a volunteer, like you can just go on calls and like, there's no problem there, but if you're paid, you can't volunteer and get paid to do the same work for the same company. And that's a federal rule, which I find kind of annoying, but um, it is what it is. <laughs> and yeah, like if I've already hit, like, let's say I hit 40 hours for a week at, at, at one service, or if it's 80 hours for two weeks, whatever the pay schedule is, um, and then I'm just like, you know, let, let's say I was really enthusiastic and I'm just trying to go on every single call I possibly can. Uh, there'd probably be some people who are annoyed and saying like, you know, the, the itchy feet call, I don't think you needed to drop what you were doing and go to that. Right. <laughs> but, uh, um, it, it could become an issue because yeah, now you have to get paid and then document it in your time clock, you know, your time card, all of that stuff. So yeah, I think people do need to be aware of that if, you know, if they're in a rural area and they're like, yeah, I guess we could have people use their private vehicles and just, you know, get a jump on things and take care of a patient. But you do need to make sure you're hitting all of those, you know, legal pay requirements. I, one service I worked for, I, I got 
right when I started, maybe like a couple months in, they ended up with a huge back pay thing because people were always trying to figure out creative ways to not pay EMS workers. And uh, so I got like 50 bucks of back pay. I mean, some people got thousands, but um, you really want to avoid that and just do it right the first time. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was thinking about the gear that folks bring with them. I'm assuming that most gear is going to be assigned by the department and it's a lot of stuff to be responsible for as a paramedic i can my favorite thing to have is that heart monitor you know so i can just i can just imagine the horror of losing that thing and so how do you know how the ems physicians uh, think about this or do they you know have you seen any anything about their oversight because really uh, it's a benefit to the community, but like you're pointing out in your article, there are oversight concerns. It's It sounds like our state level medical direction would love it if, it, I mean, first response or jumping calls, that's a reality that, that they're aware of and they accept. And they, I, I think they, they encourage that, um, especially for like higher acuity things. Like, you know, if someone cuts themselves with a chainsaw, they're going to need um, oh. proper bleeding control very quickly. Um and they would also love it if basically everyone's driving around with defibrillators in their cars. Um, but, you know, then that gets expensive and annoying and like, oh, I got to bring it in in the winter um, and in the summer because I can't have things baking in the hot car. I can't have them freeze. So there's maybe like three weeks a year that you can just leave things in your car overnight. <laughs> so mm-hmm. one service is kind of okay with people carrying some advanced level medications iv supplies my hometown service everyone was issued an als bag and it was your responsibility to keep track of expiration dates and stuff uh and then this other service that like just resurrected their program uh they've said bls only uh, until an ambulance shows up and then if you're an als provider you can you know grab stuff off the ambulance and help um and i was thinking about it i was like man i do have a lot of stuff in my car but it's pretty rare that I make it beyond the pen and the notepad, yeah. right? If, if I'm just there 10 minutes before an ambulance, you know, I'm going to get a, a medical history and maybe I'll get a full set of vitals. And I, you know, I've, I've first responded, jumped to whatever, um, hundreds of calls now at this point. And only a handful of times have I maybe got, done a nebulizer, given aspirin, started an IV before the ambulance showed up. So, but you know, I bet those times actually mattered. That's why you were you know, doing those tasks. So gosh, you know, the, one of the things that you'd mentioned when we were talking before of the show was sort of one of your pet peeves was the emergency driving. And I think that, um, it's, it's something to, it's something that's really difficult to get out of the EMS blood is wanting to, um, show up emergency. And I'll tell you that I have seen very real patients die of nosebleeds, you know? So we, when we talk about things that sometimes sound so insignificant, I guess it's those, um, those one in a hundred cases that we, uh, that we, that we're doing it, but t- tell me more about your take because research study after research study has shown that driving lights and sirens does not help in the end. So I personally think it's situational, but I know this is one of your pet peeves. So tell me what your thoughts are. All right. So um, I'll just say that 
if I had to be all or nothing about it, I would say we would just get rid of the lights. But like, I'm not an absolutist. Um, just I know the data says that like almost never does it help the long-term outcome of the patient. Um, but there are some cases where, yeah, it's like, it's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with this on, on it being situational. Um, like one of the, so, so here's an interesting thing. I don't know if this would happen in a city. One service I work for, the first ambulance is out on a call um, and the second ambulance is out for maintenance. So, and then we get a call for someone, for a hospice patient who just needs lifting assistance from their regular bed to their new hospital bed that just got delivered. Um, not a big deal. And I think like five of us went to this call just in our personal vehicles. We didn't call for mutual aid, didn't call for an ambulance because we're like, you know, that's pretty cut and dry on, on what we're going to be doing. And um, I, I, as I recall, at least two of the five of us kind of drove like idiots, lights and sirens, you know, 60 and a 25 through the center of town to get everybody to this race and everybody else. Yeah, I'm and like all speed racing. Like we could like get there in half an hour. We could give this an hour or two and the situation's not going to change. We don't need lights to go to this. So I really think that flow of traffic responses um, should be way more normal. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we're taking a lackadaisical approach to the call. Um, it, it just means like, okay, a call comes in, we, we get our butts in gear, we get in the ambulance or our vehicle and, and we get the wheels rolling basically as soon as we can. And study after study, I think the, the biggest time savings I've seen, um, on, like on an average over a system is like four minutes time savings. And that's the best numbers. Like the normal numbers are like two minutes of time savings. So, um, you know, how often does two minutes really matter? And then, you know, the other stuff that drives me crazy is like, oh yeah, that call sounds boring or lame. Okay. You know, I'm going to go use the bathroom first. Um, I'm going to finish my sandwich and then I'm going to mosey out to the ambulance. And then I'm going to drive like an idiot with my lights and sirens. Like you could have saved way more time by just being efficient with your movements rather than being dangerous with the driving. So yeah. Can um, I just share with you? I, when I um, used to work with this paramedic, his name was Mark Boyd and he lives in um, Missouri now. And I don't I believe he's a minister and he stopped being a paramedic, but he's a very large man. And he, in my opinion, was a really good paramedic. One of the first paramedics that I worked with in my career. And that was his philosophy. He said that the, the biggest time killer was getting to the truck. And so what I noticed was that, you know, if the alarm went off, you would have this man barreling down the hall, you know, busting down doors to get to that ambulance. And it's funny because he'd beat everybody. He would, you know, and so I think that, you know, because of his size, he was sort of like wanting to prove that nobody's going to have one up on me. And he did it really well, but he also drove fast. But the point that he made well was that it's it's time to get your um, but up and getting gear. And when I precept new EMTs or when I have students that come ride with me on the ambulance, that's the first thing I tell them. I say that uh, it's important for you to make sure your bladder's always empty all the time. So you, we can't get into a spot where you have to go to the bathroom because you may not. And uh, thinking about 
those uh, extra pieces really matter. The other thing that I guess we haven't really mentioned is what the public thinks about all this. And I think that from the public standpoint, I'm just imagining that we have a person who doesn't really know much about emergency medicine that's scared, you know? So that fear is what's driving the, oh my gosh, get me, you know, get somebody here faster to take over, to deal with this, to make sure that everything's okay. And I'm going to just give a shout out to my dispatch friends right now and say that this might be an opportunity, depending on the system, for the dispatcher to be able to do that time on the phone that would keep the situation calm, you know? And I, I know that right now the orientation for dispatch is get is getting information and getting people there. And I know that many dispatch systems give instructions, but what I don't think that I, what I have not seen are, are opportunities for the dispatcher to sort of switch direction and then focus on the scene management. So tell me more about your thoughts on that. So Vermont is lucky. Um, I mean, and, and let's be real, the, the population of Vermont is like a, a, a large music festival, right? There's like 650,000 people who live here. So um, it, it's not a huge population. And, uh, but statewide, uh, if you call 911, every 911 call taker has the same training and they're trained in emergency medical, um, like pre-arrival instructions, same for law enforcement and fire. Um, and medical calls in particular, the 911 call taker owns that call until more help gets there. Uh, it doesn't matter where in the state you are, like whoever answers that call, they're with you on the phone giving you instructions and advice and comfort um, until the, the flashing lights show up. I, I've been impressed with um, with the instructions that people have had before I show up with an ambulance or in my car. You know, they've got their medication list ready. They've loose if they're having trouble breathing, they've ditched their tight fitting clothing. Um, they've put the dog away. No, I mean, they, they didn't. They never put the dog away for me. I, I mean, love dogs too, but they never put them away for me. It's it's not a universal, but <laughs> Um, I, I have, you know, it's it's however much time they have to give instructions. They're like, okay, well, what's the next thing we can deal with? Oh, is your car in the way? Like, are they going to be able to get in? You know, the longer it is, the more questions they ask and the, and the, you know, more instructions they give so that people stay calm. Because if they have something to do, they're a lot calmer. Well, um, it's, it's fun to think about because, you know, uh, that's not a world that I live in. I just sort of touch base with dispatch for you know, from time to time. And it's a lot of intensity. And so, I know that the high volume 911 systems don't stay on the phone necessarily the whole time, you know? And so I think it's situational with them. This yeah. is, th this is great stuff. B before we get going, do you have anything else that you want to add or, or mention to our talk? I mean, I, I could go on for days about this stuff, but um, when you're talking about like uniforms and, and professionalism, stuff like that, um, it, it's so interesting because like, yeah, in a city, if someone's not wearing the, the uniform. Who are who are you? Get out of my face! I don't trust you. Right. Uh, but what I've found in in rural areas is if you just show up, I mean, and, and you got some bag that's semi-reflective, and it, you know, you kind of look like you know what you're doing. Um, my experience has been that if if you show up, um, I mean, they've called, so they're expecting someone to show up, um, and. And if you're calm, you introduce yourself uh, and you explain 
hey, I'm just here before an ambulance. The ambulance is on the way and, and let's see what we can do to help in the meantime. Um, I have found that it doesn't matter at all what I'm wearing. Uh, like to the point of being ridiculous sometimes. Um, I, I have gone to so many calls. It was like I had this shirt that was jinxed. I'd be out doing yard work in the shirt that said University of Vermont Naked Bike Ride. And I'd get so many calls when I was wearing that shirt. <laughs> um, and I'd, I'd go. And um, I went to a construction zone once with a canoe on the roof of my car. And I'm wearing shorts and a t-shirt and sandals because I was planning to go canoeing. Yeah. And the guys in the construction zone weren't like, Who, who's this joker? They were like, oh, thank you for coming to help our coworker. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the weirdest one, I, I was on a long distance bike ride in Utah. Um, it was like a 10 day bike trip and with a couple other friends. And I ended up being the first responder to a motorcycle crash. And I'm wearing, this is a great image. I'm wearing spandex shorts, spandex shirt and a red bandana on my head. <laughs> And I'm I'm in control of this scene for a good 20 minutes before the nearest anyone shows up um, from Wyoming because we were close to the state line, and and so you know advanced EMT shows up and I'm like oh thank goodness I can leave, and he just like keeps deferring to me. Well, you already got there. You already made contact. I understand, right? You got you yeah, got. And I'm like got... I'm just some guy on a bicycle. Like he He's doesn't know. Who I am. But I guess. <laughs> I guess there was something about how I was just communicating and, and behaving that sent signals that like, this is okay. And we, and I know what's going on and I know what to do. And if you're sending those signals, the the clothing doesn't matter. Um, And I think, you know, especially in a rural area, right. It's going to be sometimes an hour before an actual ambulance shows up. Beggars can't be choosers. (laughs) Yeah. And when I'm, when I'm in a more rural area, I do have a feeling that I need to stop at a car wreck or I have a feeling that I need, because I understand that the environment is different, but if I'm in the city, the chances that I'm going to stop are pretty low. And some of it is because I've been on the other side of that. I've been the 911 responder who felt like that these folks were in my way kind of. And part of it is, is this time that we have difference. So in the city, we're looking at four to eight minutes of a response and in, in the rural area, it just doesn't happen that way. What was it like country mouse versus um, city mouse? <laughs> wasn't, there some, <laughs> wasn't there something like that about, uh, but you know, when, um, when I leave the house, I pretty much, I'm a, uh, Boy Scout. So I pretty much have my uniform tucked in, ready to go, like, you know, prim and proper on all on all my calls, ready to go. But when we when I worked in one of the rural parts of the country, I wore a jumpsuit. And I remember that uh, one time I was in the shower and I got a 911 call for a CPR and I had to get in that jumpsuit while I was still wet, oh. emergency style. And I almost killed myself, you know, but <laughs> I made it out. I still even remember the whole call. And it was like 15 years, 20 years ago. And I made it out to the scene. And I remember that I was still wet, you know, underneath that, that suit. And so it's like a, whatever it takes attitude. And it's, there's also a little bit more of like a superhero feel to the job when you're the only person available, only, only, um, only person out there. And um, it makes the job have a different level of responsibility because you're it sometimes. I appreciate 
being able to talk to you about this. And I think it's, I think it's really cool. So it first thinking about jumping calls was just a, about a woo woo or a mother jugs and speed kind of thing. And now for those of us who don't live in the rural area, it's important to see that the only help that your neighbors might get is your help. And so having, um, an EMT after your name or an RN after your name has a different level of responsibility in the rural areas. And so I appreciate you your work and your approach to this. And uh, Latimer, thanks for being with me on the show today. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. It's, uh, great, great to have a bigger platform to celebrate rural EMS. So I want to also invite you to check out my latest book. I co-authored the book with Four Arrows, who has two doctorates and is an expert on indigenous scholarship and hypnosis. So I just want to invite you to check it out because we introduce a method for communicating with patients on the scene of an emergency that takes advantage of some of the properties found in hypnosis. And so especially in a rural environment where you have nobody coming for a while, it's good to have some background on what to say and how to talk to these patients. The book is called Hypnotic Communication in Emergency Medical Settings for Life-Saving and Therapeutic Outcomes. You can follow the link below or find it pretty much anywhere that books are sold. Um, if you contact me with a proof or a message about your order, I'll be happy to mail you an autograph sticker. It's kind of like a design thing to put in the jacket cover. I'm doing that because I have friends that are mailing me books and there's no need for you to mail me your book. If you want me to autograph it, I'll get it uh, a sticker off to you. I'm also doing a research project related to first responders who live in the United States. And I could really use your help if you don't mind being interviewed by me. It takes about an hour and it's over a video call. So just go to my website and fill out the form at professorbram.com, professorbram.com. And I just want to say thank you again for listening. I look forward to sharing more insights with you in this next episode. And so if you enjoyed EMS research, please tell your friends, like, share, and subscribe to help others get the message. And then to check out what we looked at, stay tuned for the credits at the end. Thanks. Mm -hmm.